Well, let's bow our heads to pray for God's help in understanding and applying those words. Prayer based on Psalm 119, verse 18. Heavenly Father, please open our eyes that we may see wonderful things out of your word. For Jesus' sake, Amen. A few weeks ago, we studied the parable of the prodigal son in church on Sunday and then again in our community group. The parable of the prodigal son is everyone's favorite parable and it's everyone's favorite parable for a good reason. It reveals the heart of God. It reveals his longing for relationship with the people he's made. Prodigal means extravagant and the prodigal son is so extravagant with his inherited money that he ends up with nothing. He goes home to his father, intending to offer his services as a hired hand, but his father receives him with open arms and pours out blessings upon him. A ring, fine clothes, feasting, music, dancing. The prodigal son isn't grudgingly forgiven. He receives the very best his father has got. And of course, the father in the parable represents God. One lesson that I hope we learn from our time studying that parable is that Christians don't graduate from that first experience of God's loving embrace. We don't graduate from that to another way of relating to God, a way of, a way of relating to God based on earning his favor. No, through faith, in Jesus, we remain in the Father's loving embrace, forgiven, loved, and richly blessed. It can seem almost too good to be true. And that's why it's wonderfully reassuring to see that same message of unearned divine kindness elsewhere in the Bible, such as here in Genesis chapter 12. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes as he hears God say those words in verses 2 and 3, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Imagine being Abraham, receiving those pledges of divine blessing hearing them cascade down upon his head. Imagine being Abraham. What would you think? You'd think, all is well, because the creator of the universe has set his love upon me. What the prodigal son experienced when his father lovingly wrapped his arms around him and assured him of good things to come, that's what Abraham experiences here in Genesis chapter 12. To be blessed by God is to receive his favor, his goodness and kindness. When God declares a person blessed, he's saying he will use his almighty power to make sure things go well for that person. In the Bible, the blessed life is the good life, the life that is fruitful and endures forever. In the Bible, when God blesses water, it brings health instead of sickness. When he blesses work, it becomes productive. When he blesses a city, it has abundant provisions. 
so that the poor are satisfied with bread. In the Bible, when God blesses a day of the week, it's set apart for rest and refreshment. To be blessed by God is to have good things funneled down towards you from heaven. Our first song this morning doesn't use the word blessed, but in the chorus it perfectly captures what it means to be blessed. Sing with joy now, our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now, no love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? Who can stand against us if our God is for us? That is what the blessed person can say. From the Bible's point of view, nothing could be better than joining Abraham there at the centre of God's blessing. And the thrilling message of the rest of the Bible is that we can join Abraham and share in the blessing he received through faith in Jesus as God's promised saviour. The New Testament book of Galatians says, those who believe, meaning those who believe the good news about Jesus, those who believe are blessed along with Abraham. That's Galatians 3 verse 9. Those who believe are blessed along with Abraham. The joy and peace he experienced when God pledged to bless him is our experience too. Because as believers, we are blessed along with him. Now, since we're blessed along with Abraham, we can learn more about what it means to be blessed by God by looking at how God deals with this man, Abraham. When we do that, one theme stands out. God blesses people on his own terms. God is the one who gets to decide how human beings should be blessed. We're not the ones who get to decide what God's blessing looks like. That is his call. There are four aspects of God's blessing that come through in this passage, and each aspect reinforces that core theme, God blesses people on his own terms. We're going to look at those four aspects of God's blessing from now to the end of the sermon. Here's the first of the four. God's blessing is undeserved. God's blessing is undeserved. There's a verse in the book of Joshua that fills us in on Abraham's background. In Joshua 24, Joshua tells the Israelites, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Joshua doesn't say, apart from Abraham, they served other gods. No, he includes Abraham in his summary statement, they served other gods. John Calvin, the great 16th century theologian, said of that verse in Joshua, if we pay attention to the words of the inspired writer, we shall see that Abraham is no more excused from the guilt of idolatry than Terah and Nahor, end quote. So Abraham was well and truly mixed up in the idolatry found in his hometown Ur of the Chaldeans. According to historians, Ur's particular brand of paganism was moon worship. Their god was a chunk of rock that circles 
the earth. It's not even a planet. You'd think if they were going to worship a galactic object, they'd at least worship a planet. But they worshipped a moon. And Abraham was there among the worshippers. He was just another moon worshipper in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then God chose to step into his life and pour out blessings upon him. God's blessing is undeserved. There was nothing about Abraham that caught God's eye. So that God said to himself, now there's a man who deserves my blessing. He was just another moon worshipper in Ur of the Chaldeans. John Calvin puts it like this. Abraham did not emerge from profound ignorance and the pit of error by his own virtue, but was drawn out by the hand of God. That's what God does. And if through faith you're a child of Abraham and blessed along with him, the same is true for you. God has blessed you in spite of your track record, not because of it. The Bible word that captures the undeserved nature of God's blessing is grace. When God draws a person out of ignorance and error, he does so because of his grace, not because that person deserves it. And some of us will know this very well indeed from our own experience. We can look back on our lives before we became a Christian, and we can see that we shared in the idolatry going on all around us, like Abraham in Ur. In my case, I was at high school when I became a Christian. There wasn't much moon worship at my high school, but we found other idols to bow down to, such as alcohol and money and personal ambition and relationships with the opposite sex, that sort of thing. I believed the same things that everyone around me believed and worshipped those same idols. My life was no better than theirs. What Calvin says of Abraham was true of me. Abraham did not emerge from profound ignorance and the pit of error by his own virtue, but was drawn out by the hand of God. I know some of us here were, were born into Christian families and were raised as Christians. And so you, you perhaps don't have that same before and after experience of God's grace. But if you could do the spiritual equivalent of a DNA test, one of those ancestry tests, the spiritual equivalent of a 23andMe DNA swab test, you would find a grandfather or grand, a great-grandmother perhaps becoming a Christian out of nowhere. You'd find God lifting them out of whatever idol worship was popular back then. And your family has benefited ever since down the generations. But it's not because there's anything good or merit-worthy about your family. It's grace. God drew that grandfather or great-grandmother out of whatever idolatry was popular at the time through his grace. God blesses people on his own terms. And one aspect of that blessing is that it's undeserved. I wonder if you can cope with that. Earlier, we were thinking about the parable of the prodigal son. There's another son in that parable, the older brother of the prodigal son. And he refuses to join in with the party thrown by his father in honor of the prodigal son's return. The older brother could not cope 
with his father's generous character, he wanted a father who only blessed people if they deserved it because of their hard work and their good deeds. He couldn't cope with his father's generosity. And at the end of the parable, he's still outside the party. He's outside his father's blessing. Christians can easily slip into an older brother mindset that prevents us rejoicing in God's love until we feel that we've done enough to deserve it. We don't allow ourselves to rejoice in the truth of Romans 8 verse 32, that God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will also, along with him, graciously give us all things. Romans 8, verse 32. Instead, we slip into that older brother mindset, telling ourselves, I'll rejoice in truths like Romans 8, 32, once I've done everything on my to-do list, so I feel that I deserve it from God. That's the older brother mindset. It keeps us outside the feast. God's blessing needs to be accepted as blessing that is undeserved. He blesses people on his own terms. And if we twist his blessing into something we earn, we'll be left outside the feast like the older brother. We are never able to earn God's blessing through our own good deeds. Well, the next aspect of God's blessing for us to consider is that it is unconventional. That's what we should expect from a God who blesses people on his own terms. And it's certainly what Abraham discovered in his experience. God's blessing is unconventional. Please look down to verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Thanks to our first Bible reading from Acts 7, we know God said those words to Abraham while he was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. What's more, we know from Genesis 11 that God had told Abram, to go to Canaan. He knew the uh, end destination, Canaan. Canaan was a thousand miles away from Ur. And travel at that time was both extremely difficult and dangerous. Travel can be rather pleasant now with a good radio station, air conditioning in the car, conveniently positioned cup holders, Camels offer none of those things. You can't upgrade to a luxury SUV camel. What's more, Abraham didn't belong to a nomadic people group that was used to traveling long distances. Nomads don't live in cities. Abraham did live in a city, Ur of the Chaldeans. And Ur was one of the great cities of that day and age. It was a kind of Fashionable, prosperous city that gets listed on perfume boxes. Paris, New York, London, Ur. Traveling from comfortable Ur to dangerous Canaan with its hostile inhabitants was a highly unconventional thing to do. And yet, that is what God commands Abraham to do, the man he's pledging to bless. That unconventional relocation is part of the blessing package. 
God blesses people on his own terms. He doesn't say to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and here's a suggestion. You might also want to go to Canaan. It's a suggestion. No, he says, leave. I'm going to bless you. Leave. He commands Abraham to go to Canaan. In our period of salvation history, God's blessing also comes with commands attached, just as it did with Abraham. As we've already heard, God's blessing is not earned through obedience, but God certainly expects obedience from the people he blesses, and rebellion, sustained rebellion against God's commands, is how a person rejects God's blessing. We're saved for service, rescued for repentance, and forgiven for faithfulness. In New York City, some of the commands that God expects us to obey are just as unconventional as Abraham's journey from Ur to Canaan. Lord willing, this fall, there will be Christian freshmen showing up again in person at New York's colleges, such as Columbia and NYU. The obedience God expects from Christian freshmen in areas such as drinking, sex, the kind of language they use, that obedience will seem highly unconventional. If you think of how those Christian freshmen are, are received by the other freshmen around them, there will be crude jokes that obedient Christian freshmen won't laugh at, even though everyone else will be laughing. Christians often consider this unconventional side of God's blessing as a hardship and not a blessing at all. And that's understandable because wanting to fit in with everyone around you is a very natural human instinct. But even though the unconventional side of God's blessing takes some getting used to, a lifetime of getting used to, it is still part of his blessing. It was good for Abraham to go to Canaan, as we'll see later in the sermon, and it is good for Christians to obey God's commands. 1 John 5 verse 3 says that God's commands are not burdensome. Jesus says in Matthew 11, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. All of God's commands are given for our good, including the unconventional ones in our particular culture. And God gives us the power we need to obey them through his Holy Spirit. Let's press on to the third aspect of God's blessing displayed in this passage. God's blessing is unrestricted. That's the third aspect of God's blessing with one more still to come. God's blessing is unrestricted. As you can see from the way those verses 2 and 3 are set out in the service program, they are poetry. They form a short, carefully constructed poem. The first half of the poem, verse 2, is concerned with Abraham himself and uh, the nation that will descend from him. The second half of the poem, verse 3, dramatically widens the scope of God's blessing to include all peoples on earth. They will all be blessed through Abraham, God says at the end of verse 3. 
with the exception of those who curse Abraham, earlier in verse 3. Now this unrestricted all peoples on earth aspect of God's blessing fits the theme of God blessing people on his own terms because there have been times in human history when God's people have actually wanted his, his blessing to be restricted instead of unrestricted. The prophet Jonah is one example of that. He fled to Tarshish in the west rather than proclaim God's blessing in Nineveh in the east. When he later goes to Nineveh, after the storm and the whale, when he later goes to Nineveh and proclaims God's word, the Ninevites respond with repentance and faith. They receive God's mercy, his kindness, and Jonah comes right out and complains to God about that. He says, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah did not want God's blessing to be extended to those Assyrians. But God's blessing is unrestricted. Jonah's attitude was echoed in the 18th century here in America by slaveholders who withheld the gospel from their slaves because they didn't want their slaves to receive God's blessing. It sounds too horrendous to be true, but we know that's what was going on because of a widely published open letter. It was published in all the newspapers of the time, written in 1740. Here's a quote from the letter. It was written by a, a preacher of that time. I have great reason to believe that most of you on purpose keep your slaves ignorant of Christianity. I know the general pretense for this neglect of their souls is that teaching them Christianity would make them proud and consequently unwilling to submit to slavery. But what a dreadful reflection is this on your holy religion. So that preacher was calling on people to stop doing what he observed happening widely among the colonies at that time. I expect we shiver at the thought of those 18th century Christians withholding God's blessing, the blessing that comes through the gospel from enslaved people. Well, bottle up that horror you're feeling and uh, use that bottled horror to drive you to engage with people you might naturally wish to avoid. I can't imagine anyone in our church consciously deciding to withhold the gospel from any group of people. But I can imagine folks in our church, including me, just holding back from friendly conversation with people radically different from us. Sometimes friendly conversations along the way in life can lead to opportunities to share the gospel with people. 
But isn't it true that we instinctively avoid getting into those conversations when we think someone isn't our type of person? It may be subconscious, but we instinctively avoid getting into those conversations when we just think these, uh, these, this person, these people, are not our kind of people. When that happens, we're really acting like latter-day Jonas, restricting God's unrestricted blessing. His blessing is for all people. God wants everyone to trust in his son Jesus, Abraham's descendant. Faith in Jesus qualifies us to receive God's blessing because we need to be pure to enter God's presence. And Jesus purifies us by taking away our sin. He takes it upon himself as he dies on the cross, punished in our place. So we should make it a point of principle to engage with the people who are least like us in the hope that we'll have an opportunity to speak to them of Jesus and the eternal divine blessing that comes through faith in him. God's blessing is unrestricted. It's time to move on to the fourth and final aspect of God's blessing. We've seen throughout that God blesses people on his own terms. And that's also true of the fourth aspect of his blessing. It's unfinished. God's blessing is unfinished and he is in charge of the timing. Abraham didn't receive the fullness of God's blessing during his own lifetime. It was promised to him. That's uh, not clear from this passage in terms of the land. But the land is clearly promised to him in chapter 17, Genesis 17. And yet by the time Abraham died, he hadn't received the land himself. So he's promised God's blessing with regard to the land, Genesis 17. By the time he dies, he hasn't yet received the land. Stephen sums it up in Acts 7 verse 5, which we heard in our first Bible reading. God gave Abraham no inheritance in the land, not even a foot's length. Many of us don't own a foot's length of land here in Manhattan. And Abraham was in the exact same position in Canaan, according to Stephen. But as we'll see during the coming weeks, Abraham never gives any indication that he feels God has let him down when it comes to receiving the land. We'll see that Abraham is very perplexed about his lack of children, which affects the great nation coming from him, side of God's blessing. But he's never perplexed about his lack of land. Why is that? We find the answer in Hebrews 11, the famous Hall of Faith chapter. The writer of Hebrews says that Abraham was, quote, longing for a better country, a heavenly one. That's Hebrews 11:16. In other words, Abraham understood perfectly well that the country he would inherit would be a heavenly version of the land of Canaan a version fit for God himself to dwell in. Abraham understood that. That's why he never complained to God about his lack of property in Canaan. 
But why then does God want Abraham to go to this land and see it if the version he will actually possess is a future heavenly version? We know from verse 1 that God wanted Abraham to see the land. And we know Abraham eventually arrived. As we saw last week, he got stuck in Haran to the north of Canaan. But he did eventually come to Canaan. Verse 5 says, They arrived there. Then he travelled through Canaan to Shechem. Verse 6, Shechem is about halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Then he keeps travelling south to Bethel. Verse 8, Bethel is south of Shechem. Until finally he reaches the southernmost territory within the boundaries of Canaan, the Negev Desert, mentioned there in verse 9, the end of verse 9. So we know God wanted to show Abraham the land, and we know Abraham wanted to see it because he traveled all the way through it, north to south. For both God and Abraham, it was meaningful and important that Abraham should see the land he had been promised, even though according to Hebrews 11, he was longing for the heavenly version of the land, the version God himself will dwell in. So we need to figure out why God and Abraham wanted to see the earthly version of the land, even though he was longing for the heavenly version. Surely the explanation is that the earthly version of the land is closely related to the heavenly version. That's the only explanation that makes sense of God's desire for Abraham to see the land and Abraham's desire to see it. The earthly version is closely related to the new heavens, new earth version. What we learn about God from that is that he doesn't make super spiritual promises. He makes touchable, smellable promises. Abraham, no doubt, often stooped down and gathered up soil in his hands and let it run through his fingers and told himself, someday this will be mine. And God wanted him to do that. God wanted Abraham to let the soil of Canaan run through his fingers so that he and we too, alongside Abraham, would find our minds and hearts stirred by the thought of the good land that we will inherit eternally. God's blessing is unfinished, but his promise of blessing is touchable and smellable and designed to stir up hope for the future. It's a promise that can be run through the fingers. As believers in Jesus, we can put ourselves in Abraham's shoes and hear those blessings in verses 2 and 3 cascade down upon our heads. Remember Galatians 3 verse 9. Those who believe are blessed along with Abraham. And if you're not yet a believer in Jesus and you're listening to this sermon, you could come to him today and put your trust in him today. Ask God to give you faith in Jesus. There is no better place to be than to be held 
in the father's embrace, like the prodigal son, like Abraham, receiving God's blessing, his undeserved, unconventional, unrestricted, and unfinished blessing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would give us a fresh sense of how little we deserve your blessing. Keep us from pride. We pray that we would understand grace. That you bless us generously, even though we don't deserve it. We pray that you would strengthen us to receive the unconventional side of your blessing, the commands that make us stick out among those around us. Give us strength to obey. Help us to see the goodness of your commands. We pray, Father, that when we encounter people who are very different from us, you would help us to engage with them in a friendly way. And we pray you would give us opportunities to share the gospel with people very unlike ourselves. Help us to live in the light of the unrestricted nature of your blessing. And we pray too that you would give us great hope in the aspect of your blessing still to come, our inheritance of the country you have promised. Keep us hoping. Would we long for your son's return? And we pray, Father, those words in the New Testament, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.